thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Memories are a crucial part of what makes us human. Deprived of the memories we have created of the people, the beliefs and the things we love, our lives would be emptied of meaning. And it's precisely that loss that we're talking about this week, dementia, the cruel, relentless unravelling of memory that seems to strike so many people in old age and sometimes earlier. There's a bundle of different symptoms associated with dementia. Among them, decreased spatial awareness and the loss of the ability to plan. Dementia can come in many different forms. The most common, or at least the best known, is Alzheimer's. Here is Isabel Cochrane of the University of Cambridge speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast. It is not entirely clear how the disease comes about, but what we do know is that when the brains of people with Alzheimer's are examined at post-mortem, abnormal protein fragments called amyloid plaques are seen. As these plaques are deposited in the brain, it is believed that they cause inflammation. Inflammation is a generic term which describes the response of the immune system to entities that are recognised as being foreign or harmful to the body. This process of inflammation leads to the neurons in the brain behaving abnormally, which in turn is thought to result in the characteristic changes in brain function that we see. It's always rather sobering for a theologian like me to hear such precise and physical explanations for what is, after all, a profound loss. Of human dignity. With me to discuss dementia are Professor John Swinton, Chair of Divinity and Religious Studies at the School of Divinity, History and Philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. John himself is an ordained minister of the Church of Scotland and founder of the University's Centre for Spirituality, Health and Disability. And the Reverend Joanna Collicott, Carl Jasper's lecturer at Ripon College, Callison, Oxford, a training college for Christian ministry. And Joanna has also worked on the front line for the NHS in Oxford. Joanna, you approach these matters with both a neuroscientific and religious perspective. How well do they work together? I think they can work really well together, but it takes some effort and reflection because in the history of Christianity, um, the physical, the material and the spiritual have been separated out from each other. And I think that's because... Christianity has piggybacked on other philosophical systems, um, particularly Neoplatonism and a kind of particular approach to the world that is dualistic. And then in the age of the Enlightenment, kind of following Descartes and his great emphasis on cognition, 
thinking and existence, but also his split of the body, the physical body and the immaterial soul. I think, in a way, uh, religion has been slightly led astray, because if you go back to the Bible, it takes a very integrated approach to the human person, where um, we are whole human beings who have both a physical and a spiritual existence, evident in one body. And the incarnation of God in Christ, in a sense, sums that up. God becomes a full human being. And Jesus of Nazareth had a brain himself. Um, And that should, in a sense, give us a clue that the approach to take is an integrated approach. But as I've said, it takes a bit of getting over 2000 years of history to be able to embrace that fully. John, do you recognise that tension? I think there is a tension. I think there's a cultural tension around what it means to be a human being. And I think John is quite right to suggest that culturally we emphasise things like cognition and memory um, and the ability to tell your own story. Um, But scripturally, uh, there's something else going on. If you think about the, the creation account, God creates human beings out of the dust he doesn't create human brains out of the dust. He creates human beings out of the dust. So, and the incarnation pushes us back to think about that as well, that God comes to us in a whole human being, not just an aspect of it. So culturally, dementia is a really problematic condition in the sense that if we think the essence of being a human being is to be able to think quickly, think well, remember things, then you have a problem. But if you think the essence of being a human being is to be loved and to be cared for, then you have a very different experience. How do we care then for uh, uh, someone suffering from dementia who has a different understanding of relationships, of memory, of time? Yeah, I think we have to shift and, and move away from the language of suffering because although suffering is involved with some uh, dementia at certain moments in time, that doesn't define the person when they're, they're uh, living with dementia. So people with dementia have positive experiences, they have meaningful experiences, they have hopes and desires. They may not be able to articulate themselves in the way that they used to, but through their bodies, through their experiences, through their relationships and communities, they can tell you very clearly what they want. And what people want is very often the same as us, just security and someone around you that you can trust and the possibility of some hope for the future. So I think one of the things we can do to begin with is just shift our our general language and perspective away from suffering towards the idea of how can we really give this person a good life? And when we think that way, we begin to see things differently. So it's a kind of literacy. We talk about religion and belief literacy quite often uh, in in the world of theology. Uh, And here what we need is some dementia literacy, if you like. I think, yeah, I think that's exactly right. So the, the kind of language that you use to describe something tends to shape and form the way you respond to it. So if you're using the language of suffering all the time, then you'll know you be patronising, you'll be feeling sorry for people. But if you lose more positive language, then you will act more positively. So even that small shift in the way we talk about things can actually have profound practical and ultimately spiritual impact. I think it's, it's, it's primarily a cultural rather than a clinical issue. And in that, that is part of the language as well, you know, to what extent do you medicalize dementia? Um, if you look at it as a clinical condition, which is, you know, the dominant way we look at it, and it's a very enlightened way of looking at it in some ways, that cuts off other ways 
of looking at the person. So it invites the language of patient, for instance. Um, and there's good things about being a patient because you're cared for and allowances are made for your weaknesses and you have access to treatments if there are any available. But there are lots of disadvantages of patient language as well. Um, there's a kind of removal from being an active citizen. There's a loss of agency. There's treatments if there are any available. But there are lots of disadvantages of patient language as well. And another thing I think I'd say about that patient role is that nothing very much is demanded of you. And one of the things that dignifies us as human beings is to have demands made of us. And that may seem very counterintuitive when you're talking about someone in the advanced stages of dementia who appears not to be capable of very much. But actually to try and think creatively about how to ask things of people rather than simply to do things to them. Or speaking from a religious perspective, how we might learn from people with dementia uh, rather than simply um, think about good ways of looking after them. So, John, what can we learn from people with dementia? Well, we can learn that, that uh, human beings are not just the things that they remember, that there's more to being human than just remembering who you are. So we can begin by recognising that there are different ways in which we can relate to people. So culturally, we relate to people through language primarily and very often through talking, discussing complicated things. Whereas, in fact, what we learn for people, particularly people with advanced dementia, is sometimes when your language goes, you've got to discover other ways of being with people. You've got to discover how to be present with somebody without words. And that's, that's a highly complicated thing to do, to be actually present. But I said one of the one of the most challenging things about contemporary culture, I think, is the uh, lack of presence. Right? So I've been doing some work with a, an organisation in Australia looking specifically at the issue of, of presence. And if you think about it, you know, you sit around a table and uh, in a restaurant and you look at other people and you have four people around the table and they'll all be on their phones. So you're present, but actually not present at all. And one of the things about our culture is that we're developing, I suspect, a culture of absence where absence becomes the norm. And social media is one of the problems with that. One of the things that happens when we encounter people who don't use language, perhaps the way that we do, or who don't respond in the way that we assume they should do, is we are thrown back to think about what presence looks like. How can you be present with somebody with advanced dementia? When a lot of the cues that you normally get, vocal cues, lyrical cues, whatever, are not there. And it's a real skill for people to be able to do that. And the work that we've been doing in, in Australia has been looking at how can we get carers to be present in a situation where culturally you're taught to be absent, but actually to be present is quite difficult. So we can learn how to be present with one another in very deep and profound ways, I think. It's more challenging in today's context because we're not present. I mean, we are isolated. Uh, and even as things begin to move forward, we're still not present. So how can we be present when we're not present? I'm going to put that to the psychologist, I think. Um, it's actually, it, it's a hugely, it's a deeply spiritual question. I'm, I'm, going, I'm sidestepping it a bit, but um, it, we talk about the presence of Christ when he isn't present. You know, we, we, in our faith, we have to kind of negotiate that um, the whole time. And uh, actually, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, part of my work is teaching spirituality. And I've been thinking a lot about how spiritual practices are ways of making Christ's presence felt in a situation when he's 
left the building essentially because he's ascended and risen and um so maybe we can learn things from that uh, in terms of being present to people when we're not but i guess one thing i would say is that i called my book thinking of you and there's lots of reasons why i called it that but one of them was that i was asked somebody who was a very experienced practitioner uh, a, a hospital chaplain how do you take your leave from someone with dementia when they are distressed and it's very difficult to end that conversation um, and she said well I, I always say to them I'll be thinking of you and she said that can be a kind of um, cliche in the way that um, Trump has said thoughts and prayers and turned that into a bit of a cliche uh, but it actually for a person whose cognition is impaired um to be able to say, I will hold you in my thoughts is a very significant um, thing to be able to offer them. And to continue to think of them is um, actually to somehow extend their existence. And it, it, it's something that makes the parting, um, if not easier, it gives you a kind of frame of meaning within which to place it. But as you part, um, you know, I often have uh, left physical tokens with people. So cards, holding crosses, whatever it is, which is, again, is a little bit sacramental if you use that spiritual analogy, that um, to give people some kind of token of presence that even when their conscious memory uh, has fled and they don't know you ever visited them, there is this sense of something left behind that they can touch. Before we go to our break, John, I want to push back on something, um, which is when you said and I agree with you that we have to be careful of language. But at the same time, when you're visiting somebody who is ill, um, who is uh, clearly suffering, are you going to use that word deliberately from some kind of illness? Um, are we not taught to uh, engage with that, whether we're Christian or of whatever faith or of no faith um, in terms of uh, relating to that person um, in their in their illness? What, what, why is that such a problem? My, my concern over language is that people shouldn't, with dementia, shouldn't be defined by suffering. It's not that people don't suffer because everybody suffers and there's aspects of dementia which are clearly highly problematic for individuals and for families. But if we only use the language of suffering, and if you look at the public profile of, of dementia, people very often do only use that language, then that's the way that we'll begin to see people, experience people and respond to people. So I'd rather we, when we're approaching people to think about in terms of understanding so you understand that the, the, the people are going through certain things but that these the suffering dimensions don't define who that individual is so essentially we're making it the com complexity that it really is that we're not simplifying it exactly I, I, we're not reducing it it's absolutely right yeah i totally um agree with that and i think um the reality of suffering in dementia is something that um we need to face up to. And I think some of the absence that we've just been talking about, uh, sometimes loved ones um, absent themselves because to engage with the suffering is just too hard for them. Um, and so actually part of the skill of being present or the capacity to be present is the capacity to open your eyes to the reality of the suffering of the other person uh, and not to be engulfed by it. Uh, and to be present for them and hold them so metaphorically so that they are not um, engulfed by it. Uh, and I, I think um, just as we don't want to def define people 
as suffering from dementia, we also need to allow them to lament uh, because that's part of human experience. And so sometimes when people with dementia are distressed, that's just appropriate and it doesn't need to be treated with drugs or damped down, but just, as it were, held by being fully present with them in that moment. But we find distress very difficult, Joanna, don't we, if we're witnessing it? Oh, it's horrible because we are we are out of control. Um, so this is this thing about taking leave of someone with dementia and, and, and them still being distressed, and that is so hard for us. So we can't fix it uh, in an easy kind of way or even in a complicated kind of way. Um, and it challenges it, our sense of control over everything. But equally, um, because any of us could, could get dementia, uh, we see... Um, a possible future for ourselves in this as well. So there is the suffering of the other, and there's also fear of um, our own kind of existential uh, fragility. Uh, it's very hard to be present in that way, but it's and that's one of, one of the things I think we can learn not so much from people with dementia, but from the existence of the condition, is that it challenges us to grow up a bit and be able to face these really difficult things which are to do with mortality um, and and not just physical annihilation but kind of the breakdown of all the things that we take for granted as making us who we are and to stare that in the face. Well let's take a pause there and reflect on what we've heard so far. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me Ed Kessler and with me this week are Professor John Swinton from the University of Aberdeen and the Reverend Joanna Collicott from Cuddleston in Oxford, and we're discussing dementia. Medical advances in the treatment of this condition have, so far, been somewhat faltering. Here's a specialist, Duncan Astle, of the University of Cambridge. Treatments for dementia are few and far between at the minute, and it's been incredibly difficult to develop new drugs that will translate to a kind of prescription that you could be given by your GP. So pharmaceutical companies have been very good at finding compounds that work in the test tube or in an animal model of the disease. But when you get to what's called phase one randomized control trial, that's the first point at which that compound will come into contact with human subjects. The vast majority of those compounds fail. We heard in the first half Joanna's book, Thinking of You. I'd like to ask John about his award-winning book, which is subtitled Living in the Memories of God. What did you mean by that? Well, it's really to do with, I mean, that book focuses on mainly advanced dimensions. So at that time in your life when you begin to forget things, forget who you are, forget the people around you, it focuses a lot on memory. Uh, and so the title of the book, Living in the Memory of God, is kind of a countercultural way of thinking about how we get identity, how we are, become who we are. So culturally, we tend to think that we get our identity by being able to tell our own stories. So if you, know, if you meet somebody for the first time, you'll ask them to tell their story. and They'll, they'll tell you something from the past. You bring it into the present. You have to talk about the future. And so your identity is shaped and formed by your, your ability to tell your story. And one of the problems with people with uh, advanced dementia is that it comes to a stage when they're no longer able to tell their story. And that's when, to back to, 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 uh, to the idea of language again, that's when people begin to say things like, he or she is not the person she used to be. Whereas the subtext of that is they're no longer able to tell their story, so therefore they've lost their identity. And so my book begins to push into the idea that 
Um, we are who we are in Christ, as Paul puts it, that our identity is not what we tell about ourselves or what we can do, but what God, how God remembers us, how God holds us in that sense. We've talked a lot of Christian language, if I can put it like that. Uh, and of course, you're both ordained in the church. But I'd like to extend it beyond the church to uh, the wider question of, of humanity as a whole, whether we are uh, uh, of a faith, of a Christian faith or of, of no faith at all. Um, so how, how might we talk about it in, in, in a way that is, frankly, less exclusive? Uh, I trained originally as a mental health nurse and I worked as a hospital chaplain for a number of years. So that question is actually quite close to my heart because although I'm a theologian, which is uh, what I do, I have an openness to the spiritual tasks of care in a broader context that go on within chaplaincy, for example, whereby the recognition is that all people have certain desires that you could relate to as spiritual. So people have a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, and that doesn't shift and change when you have dementia. So for people working in a a non-religious context, the key thing is to recognise the person as a fully functioning person. By that I mean, okay, you're losing certain things, but there are certain things which you certainly don't lose. Your desire to be loved, your desire to be accepted, your sense of being part of community. These are things that don't disappear. They may change shape and form. And so when you're working within a secular context, whether a person is religious or otherwise, these key aspects of personhood become the focus for your ministry. So essentially it's about human dignity in its entirety. It's about human dignity, but it's about recognising that human dignity is a gift that's given to people rather than based on capacities that people have. And one of the problems, of course, if you meet a dementia patient with severe dementia, um, the the interaction is incredibly limited, um, if there's any whatsoever. So it, it's very hard to do that, to recognise the humanity in somebody else if there is no reaction that one recognises. Or, or maybe I've got that wrong, Joanna. I can see you looking uh, questioningly at what I was saying. I don't think it is that difficult. I, I, I think um, you go with a mindset to see the humanity in that other person. And, and it, it's, it's, I've never found it difficult to recognise. Um, you may not get lots back. Uh, there's lots of people you don't get lots back from. You don't get lots back from teenagers, you know, who don't want to speak to you. Um, it's coming back to what John says. It's not so much about us and what we do. It's about how we are... Um, how we are envisaged by God and then consequently how we as individuals envisage others and, and almost choose to see them. Um, and that that interaction becomes a personal interaction to the degree to which you enter it with that intention. That's always been my experience. And the person may not say much or do much, but as you tune in, you start to recognise these aspects of humanity and life within them. Um, and there's something again there revelatory about that because you you're stripping away the normal things that we um, attribute uh, human interaction to, like language and um, people looking at you in the eye uh, and uh, being able to move freely. And you start to tune into the very subtle things that you might otherwise miss. Um, I mean, one good example is if people still have speech, um, they tend to 
take ages to answer a question and just learning to wait a very, very long time to get some flicker of response um, is just part of the being present and understanding the humanity, which is the same with very small children. They can take forever to answer a question. But very often something comes back to you if you're ready to ready to receive it. So to a certain extent, it's about acceptance, isn't it? Accepting um, the condition that you have the condition that somebody else has and to be patient in that in 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 that new or renewed or different relationship yeah that you have a common humanity and just to be in it um and to that being present often with people is just relaxing into not doing very much to be honest but just being okay with that and being one of the gifts is just uh, allowing you to be comfortable in the here and now and in the present moment and just just to be in that and if you can achieve that um, you can get quite quite deep connection with people or a feeling of deep connection with people when the normal modes of human interaction are, are absent. So Joanna you touched on what can be a beautiful relationship between very young and old and, and those who have dementia but there are also other ways of breaking through what seems to be uh, a barrier in terms of communication. Yes, and, and I think the, the caution with that is not to treat these things as kind of reliable instruments that you can always use to break through because there is something kind of uh, spontaneous and unpredictable about how these things work. But I, I think people may be very familiar with um, the uh, very common experience that music seems to be a way to draw people out of themselves when words have failed, that people who haven't spoken for many years will still burst into song sometimes. Um, and it's perhaps not unconnected to the stuff to do with children. I knew of an old woman who had not spoken for many years, who saw a little girl in her care home going out into the garden and the weather was quite cool and the woman just opened her mouth and said she'll need a cardigan and then shut it again. Uh, so there's something about very deep and old memories. There's something about ways of being that um, don't involve this heavy language laden, rational thinking um, that go back many years to our childhood, but go back as well in our evolution to uh, other ways of thinking and being. Um, and music would be one of those. And one of the marks of music, often it gives people great joy and release. Um, and releases a kind of playfulness. And I think that's the connection with the children. Um, I think other people have experiences of the way that animals, dogs, cats, and so on can um, draw people out. And perhaps that's a slightly different thing, but it's to do again with a, a communication and a presence that isn't based on words and, and a physicality and a connection um, with uh, actually often with, with animals that just look at you with love and you can read without the words it's almost that we unlearn that as we grow up like with a lot of other things so it's 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 actually just making sure that people don't become too rationalist as that as they grow um you might know that there's quite a lot of work of involving taking toddler groups and play groups into residential care homes and there does seem to be an intuitive connection between very small children and older frail adults some of whom have dementia john yeah, I mean, I, I think that that was a nice way that Joanna put it about unlearning old habits. Because one of the, well, the habits that we need to unlearn is, is to the habit of speed. Because we're taught, and we, most of us who are driven by our diaries, 
we're taught to think about time in a very particular way. That time is like a commodity. It's something that we buy and use and, and it's something that we really are racing towards all the time. Whereas when we, uh, when we're with people with advanced dementia, you have to shift your understanding of time. And earlier on, you asked, is, is there something you, you can learn from people with dementia? There's many things, but the shift, the shift in your understanding of time is, is profoundly important. You know, there's a spiritual tradition called the sacrament of the present moment where you begin to slow down and just focus on your breathing and recognize that every breath that's given to you is a gift that's given to you by God. Uh, that's exactly the kind of spiritual practice that you need to be with people who have advanced dementia in particular. Because when that happens, you can see things that you can't see at other points. You know, sometimes when you're with people, there's moments when you just lock into them and they lock into you. It's sometimes very fleeting. It's, it's last only a second sometimes. But if you're traveling really, really quickly, you miss that connection. But if you begin to discipline yourself to the sacrament of the present moment, then you're open to connect with people in a way that very often fast people don't do. And that is a fitting way to end this podcast. Thanks to my guests, John Swinton and Joanna Collicott. And thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.